Well, good morning, Snowden family. It's good to be with you again, at least virtually. Uh, we look forward to a time in the Word together now, but let's pray as we begin. Father, your testimonies are a delight to us. They counsel us. And Lord, as we enter now into this next section of Philippians, we pray that we would have ears to hear what you are saying. And God, that we would glorify you, not only in our listening, but in our doing uh, after we hear the word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was about uh, 13 or so, I began to uh, very seriously and intentionally listen to jazz music because at the time, my goal was to become an accomplished jazz musician. So I would go to the Edmonton Public Library uh, every week, usually on a Saturday, and I would sign out as many jazz records as they would allow. I think the limit was 20. And I'd go home and I'd listen to those records and study those records very intently. And then I would try to copy, to replicate uh, what the drummers on those records were doing. I'd sit down on my own drum set and I'd try as best I could to copy what it was that I heard on the records. In order to learn the vocabulary and the, the stylistic nuances, the skills of the music, it meant that I had to listen very intently for long hours uh, to those who were far more advanced in the craft uh, than I was. Well, friends, in the next section of the letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul presents himself as the guy who is playing on the record, so to speak, the guy who's playing on the album. And he calls the Philippians to imitate him, to observe, to learn uh, his gestures and his attitudes and his values and his actions. And then to replicate those things in, in their own lives. Paul says in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. Now, at first glance, we might think here, wow, this, this seems rather egotistical on Paul's part. I mean, who goes around saying to other people, hey, hey, look at me and copy me, copy my lifestyle. Well, I think there are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind here uh, that may help us to see that actually Paul is not being arrogant. He's not being egotistical at all here. First of all, in the ancient world in which Paul and the Philippians lived, the imitation of your teachers was something that was commonly encouraged. Among others, uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca also encourage the imitation of wise teachers. We have that in Seneca's writings. And so Paul here, he's not doing something that was uncommon for the time period in which he lived. Jesus also talked about disciples being like their teachers in Matthew 10 verse 25. And in John 13, we might remember, as he was washing the feet of the disciples, 
Jesus called the disciples there to be like him, to imitate him. Uh, the disciples also were to do as Jesus was doing in washing one another's feet. So with all that in mind, we might say here that Paul calls on the Philippians to imitate him. When he does that, he's actually just being Christ-like as he issues that call. He's doing as Jesus did, just as Jesus called upon uh, people to imitate him. So Paul is doing the same thing here with the Philippians. Further, we should also bear in mind that in the moment when Paul wrote Philippians 3.17, the church did not have the New Testament yet. It hadn't taken shape yet. So they couldn't simply open the Gospels uh, in order to find out what Jesus did in a certain situation because there were no written Gospels at this point. So they needed veteran teachers, veteran examples, apostles like Paul, who they could look at and then try to imitate. Uh, we, they needed these people to be models for their own behavior. And what we need to see is that already in this letter to the Philippians, Paul has displayed himself, hasn't he? He's displayed himself as a model worth imitating. He has shown in chapter 1 how the Christian is to respond to suffering. And Paul has demonstrated to us here the path of selflessness, the path of humility in both chapter 1 and in chapter 2, of course. He's also given us the, the Christ-like models of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Paul has further shown us what true righteousness looks like in Philippians chapter 3. So Paul in this letter has modeled a Christ-like mindset and life that is worthy of imitation. Now, I want you to think right now about your own life, Christian. Who do you look to as a model of Christ-like lifestyle to imitate? Who do you admire for their Christ-like deportment, for the fruit of the Spirit that they display, for the Christian maturity that they exhibit, for the beauty of Jesus that you see emanating from them? Who do you admire? Who do you want to imitate? Who is worthy of imitation? You know, the truth is that none of us can walk the path of discipleship alone. Each of us has to find those people in our lives who God has planted around us, who, who model Christian gestures, Christ-like habits disciplines, attitudes, and we must intentionally learn from those people and imitate them. Anything less than that is egotistical on our part. It shows perhaps that we have imbibed uh, way too much of the uh, individualistic ethos of our culture. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Last summer, 
I took my two boys uh, to Toronto for a weekend, and we went up to the top of the CN Tower. You get out of the elevator and you're over 1,100 feet above the earth. And there's a glass floor up there. Now, my two boys did not have the problem that I had uh, venturing out onto that glass floor. Um, I was the last of the three of us to dare to step out onto that glass floor. And it only worked for me when I followed Silas's advice to not look down at all. Instead, he said, look, unflinchingly, <laughs> look at my face, he said, uh, as you walk out onto the glass floor. Well, finally, it took some doing, but finally I managed to do that uh, following his advice. Paul in 3.17 here tells the Philippians to keep their eyes fixed on something like my eyes were fixed on Silas that day. Paul wants the Philippians to keep their eyes set firmly set intentionally and unflinchingly on those who walk, uh, in other words, on those whose lifestyle and pattern of conduct comports with Paul's lifestyle and Timothy's lifestyle and Epaphroditus' lifestyle. These men were imitators of Christ, as is shown very amply, in this letter to the Philippians, and the Philippians needed to pay attention and become imitators of them. The Philippians must keep their eyes fixed on these Christ-like men and not look down to the glass floor, so to speak. What would happen if they did that, if they looked down at the glass floor, um, is that they would be in trouble. Now, the glass floor, the, the other option for the Philippians, which was the very dangerous option, is now described in verses 18 and 19. Now, there was another set of people that the Philippians could look at to their harm. Paul says, for many, so this is a sizable group, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, there's been a whole lot of ink spilt over the question, who exactly is this group that Paul is referring to here? What's, what's the precise identity of this group? Well, in the end, we don't know, at least in any conclusive sense. The best argument is that the people Paul refers to here were a group within the church. So these were professing believers, but in actuality, in reality, they were enemies of the cross of Christ. These were people who talked a good game in church. They said, were Christians. But by their lifestyle, they showed that in fact they were enemies of God's appointed means of salvation, the cross of Jesus Christ. 
These are people, in John Kitchen's words, who had departed from Jesus morally, even if they hadn't quite departed from him theologically. Well, God is asking you, and God is asking me right now, to check ourselves. Could this description in verse 18 apply to us? I want you to listen as soberly and carefully as you can to the contemporary application that Stephen Fowle gives here in his commentary on Philippians. Fowle says, quote, It is crucial for contemporary Christians to recognize the ease with which this can happen. If we think of these characters as people who woke up one morning and simply decided to become enemies of the cross, we will not be concerned with Paul's admonition because it could not conceivably apply to us. Instead, Fowle says, we should understand that these Christians were seeking to live faithful lives, but through various practices, through lack of proper attention to the ways in which seemingly good decisions misdirected their lives, through a failure to have their thoughts, feelings, and actions appropriately directed by Christ, they slowly and imperceptibly became enemies of the cross. Close quote. May each of us right now humble ourselves under the Holy Spirit of God and repent if necessary. Now, Paul weeps over such people. Notice this in our verse. He sheds tears over them. You see, Paul is not interested in simply denouncing these people in a, in a sort of harsh and cold way and then move on. No, Paul weeps over them. Maybe he weeps as he considers their eternal destiny. Maybe he weeps as he considers the potential harm that these people can bring inside the church. Maybe he weeps as he thinks about the offense to Jesus Christ that their lifestyle causes. The fact is, Paul weeps over them here. I think Don Carson is very much on target when he suggests that when we see people who are profess professing Christ, but yet they are denying Christ by the way that they are living, that we should not simply denounce those people. Instead, there should be, there must be a weeping in us, as the case is here with Paul. Well, Paul goes on in verse 19 to further describe these people. He says of these enemies of the cross, their end, their telos in Greek, their final destiny is destruction. Now, the word destruction here, it's a strong word. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 7.13 to describe the destiny of the person who chooses the broad path. This word has to do 
with the final loss of eternal life. And terrifyingly, here it applies, remember, to many inside the church who profess Christ but who live as enemies of the cross. This time that we are living through right now is a great time for us to be examining ourselves. May we be found in Christ and not as enemies of his cross whose end is destruction. Paul goes on here, their God is their belly. Now what Paul describes here is, is not only a sort of uh, uh, gluttonous eating, the word belly here in Greek also can describe a woman's womb where babies are conceived. So that Paul here most likely is talking about sexual appetites also. Uh, in fact, the word translated belly here is translated as the word appetites in Romans 16, 18. So what Paul is talking about here are persons whose appetites dictate their lifestyle. This is a person whose drives, whose senses dictate their behavior. He says further about these people that they glory in their shame. That is, these people boast about indecency. They brag on things that really, in reality, should cause shame. They delight in debauched behavior. And remember, in the context, these are people who profess to be Christians. Paul says also here that their minds are set on earthly things. So these people dwell in their minds on the things of this present evil age. Well, here is a crystal clear warning in these verses. A crystal clear warning about sensual indulgence. There's a warning here about letting your drives, letting your senses uh, dictate your life. But now I want you to listen very carefully here. It is very easy for us here to read this description in verses 18 and 19 and convince ourselves that we are certainly not the people that Paul is describing here. After all, we are the righteous. The righteous ones whose God is certainly not our belly. And we never glory in our shame. Our mind is always set on heavenly things. We need to be exceedingly careful here. We can come to a place where we start to think, listen, where we start to think that our virtue is far superior to the sensual indulgence or worldliness that we observe in others. And when that happens, we are very, very close to idol worship. We start to worship the idol of our own virtue, the idol of our own holier-than-thou status. And in that case, guess what? We then 
fit the description in verse 19. We fit it like a hand fits a glove. At that point, our minds are set on earthly things. Friend, don't get hung up on your own virtue. Get hung up on Jesus. Trust in Jesus, not in your own holiness. There is a difference. Well, in verse 20, Paul now moves away from his description of the enemies of the cross of Christ, now to talk about uh, the citizenship of genuine Christians. He says, but our citizenship. Now the word our here is in the emphatic position in Greek. Paul is contrasting the situation of the genuine Christian with the people that he's just described in verses 18 and 19. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now this idea of citizenship is very interesting. It's worth our careful consideration. I grew up as a citizen of Edmonton. I was what people who lived there call an Edmontonian <laughs> for the first uh, several decades of my life. And there's a sense in which Edmonton shaped, shaped me into who I am. For one thing, I know what it is to be really cold <laughs> for nine months out of the year in a way that Montrealers just don't quite understand. Uh, it's a little colder, colder, generally speaking, in Edmonton for a lot of the year. Uh, being an Edmontonian, I learned the value of having, a, it's a must, you have to have a good block heater in your car. And I also learned how to discern, how to choose the best winter jacket and the best set of mitts. Um, I also, while living in Edmonton, learned what uh, quality hockey really looks like, but that's another story. Uh, in a way, your hometown affects and shapes who you are. But notice in verse 20, Paul says, in effect, he says, your hometown, Christian, is not the place you were born or where you were raised. It's not those things, nor is it the city that you're living in now. No, your hometown, the place in which your true citizenship lies, is, your citizenship is in a place that you and I have never even visited. It's in heaven. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now, as Paul writes this to the Philippians, they certainly would understand the idea of having citizenship in a place that most of them had never visited. Uh, as we mentioned in the, in the first sermon, I think it was, in this series, uh, the city of Philippi had been granted the status of colony of Rome. So that to be a citizen of Philippi was to be a citizen of far distant Rome. As a citizen of Philippi, you had the rights, the privileges, the responsibilities of those who lived in Rome. The idea here in verse 20 is, as believers living in Philippi, as believers living in Montreal, our True citizenship is not in Rome, it's not in Montreal, it's not in Canada, 
It is instead in heaven. Our citizenship is in a place we've never been. To quote Dennis Johnson, as believers in Jesus, we are, quote, citizens of a distant cosmic capital, heaven itself, where the Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, who is infinitely mightier than Roman emperors, is ruling the universe. And that place called heaven, that citizenship in heaven, must shape who we are now. It must shape what we value in the now, what we choose, what we think, what our attitude is, what our desires are, and how we behave. It must shape all of those things. As believers, our citizenship is in heaven. We've never been there, but the Lord in whom we are uh, united with, the one we have union with, he rules from there, and we are moving toward that city. Again, I really like what Dennis Johnson says here. Uh, this is one to, to write down if you want to, or to have close at hand this week. Johnson says this, quote, for those who trust in Jesus, who we are is no longer determined by where we have come from, but instead by where we are going. Isn't that great? Again, for those who trust in Jesus, who we are is no longer determined by where we have come from, but instead by where we are going. Let's go back to verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await, and in fact here the word means we eagerly await, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a question we must ask ourselves very seriously is the question, am I eagerly waiting for Christ's return? Like, for real. Get, get really real with yourself. Am I eagerly waiting for Christ's return? As an exiled citizen who is not now in my true heavenly home, how eager am I for his Return is, is the cry of my heart the same as it is in Revelation 22 20? Come, Lord Jesus. Or is my mind so set on earthly things, to quote verse 19, that I'm not really eager for Christ to come back? Well, Jesus will come back, and in verse 21, Paul tells us what he will do with believers. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now I'm not going to dwell on this verse very long because we already talked about what it means in the Easter sermon a couple weeks ago. For now, I want you just to focus for a moment on the last part of the verse where it says, that Jesus has power to subject all things to himself. When Jesus comes back and when he resurrects believers to everlasting life, he will exercise his everlasting dominion. Amen? His everlasting dominion as the last Adam and as the reigning Lord. And that dominion, that rulership, 
will be utterly uncontested. It will be recognized universally and eternally. Therefore, says Paul, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now notice here all the rich terms of affection that Paul uses for the church. They are his brothers and his sisters. He loves them. He longs for them. They are his beloved. They are his joy and his crown. Isn't that an interesting word? In other words, the Philippian believers are the victory crown that one receives after winning the games. They are the prize that Paul sought. As John Kitchen has it, quote, the Philippian believers stand as the sign of Paul's victorious completion of the ministry handed to him by Christ, close quote. And Paul wants his beloved to stand firm. Just as I long as your pastor for each of you to stand firm. Stand firm, my beloved Snowden family. Don't be moved. Remain steadfast. Remain firmly committed in belief, committed in doctrine. Remain steadfast in a fruitful Christ-like lifestyle despite this hardship, this crisis that we are now facing. And the content of what it looks like for us to stand firm has just been detailed, hasn't it, by the Apostle Paul from chapter 1, verse 27 of this letter, all the way through chapter 3. Well, friends, as we close today, I think it might be helpful for us just to briefly summarize what we have explored in this passage. Essentially, what Paul has talked about here is a choice that sits before us, a choice. We can either focus the attention of our lives on uh, the mature Christ-like models, examples, who God plants around us. We can either try to emulate and replicate and imitate those more mature, fruitful examples, or we can look down at the glass floor, so to speak. We can focus our attention on the enemies, the many enemies of the cross of Christ, those whose minds are set on earthly things, and we can emulate them. We can either live as citizens of heaven who are moving toward our spiritual hometown, waiting eagerly, every hour of our lives for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and thus act in accordance with that hope. Or we can live debauched lives as those who are tending toward destruction. There are two paths, two destinies before us in this text. May God grant us each the humility and the wisdom to take the narrow path, which leads ultimately to the unending presence of God. Amen.